This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Twenty-five-year-old Tara Newell parked her car on the top level of her apartment building's lot. It was just after 5 p.m. on Saturday, August 20th, 2016, and it had been another beautiful day in Southern California. A few spots over, a man, partially hidden, was getting something from the trunk of his car, but Tara didn't give it a second thought. It was a busy parking lot, and there was plenty of daylight left. Collecting her dog and purse, she exited her car and walked to the rear. The five-foot, two-inch-tall Tara was immediately confronted by the towering six-foot-two-inch-tall man who had been a few spots over only moments earlier. The large man put one of his hands over her mouth, revealing a large knife in the other. He stabbed at her repeatedly, slicing deep into her forearm and another into her chest. In the struggle, Tara fell to the pavement and began kicking defensively as the man continued the attack. In the flurry of kicks, she was able to knock the knife from his grip, and the handle of the blade landed within her reach. The professional dog groomer was always known for her incredibly non-aggressive, easy-going, happy personality. But instinctively, she knew that wasn't going to save her life in this situation. Knife in hand, Tara went into all-out survival mode, and would later credit the popular TV show, The Walking Dead, for her sudden kill-or-be-killed mentality. She began stabbing wildly at the man, inflicting 13 wounds in all. If she learned one thing from watching that end-of-the-world zombie show, she understood that the only way to kill a zombie is to destroy the brain. So when her final strike went right through his left eye, the long knife driven deep into his brain, she knew it was over. As the man lay unconscious and convulsing on the parking lot pavement, the injured Tara called her mother and said, I'm really, really sorry. I think I killed your husband. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. John Meehan was born in February 1959 and raised along with his two sisters in California. His father managed a casino in San Jose and taught John everything he knew about how to make a quick buck. Insurance fraud and a string of lawsuits against businesses and people became John's specialty. He learned how to lie, cheat, and manipulate to get what he wanted. His father also taught him how to be vindictive. According to his sisters, their father believed that no perceived insult should go unpunished and that to really make people suffer you have to go after their family. John Meehan grew up enjoying rumors that his family was related to infamous crime boss Albert Anastasia. The mobster, nicknamed the Mad Hatter, ran the Murder Inc. syndicate in the 40s and 50s and was well known for taking brutal revenge on those who crossed him. Despite any proof he was actually related, John was known to threaten people with his supposed mob connections. John's parents split up when he was a teenager, and his sisters started to notice a shift in his already cold and self-serving personality. He became even more angry and more withdrawn 
eventually wanting nothing to do with his parents. As he got older, his need for easy money saw him swindle almost everyone he met. As his sister was quoted saying, he was a hustler. Whatever he had to do to get money, he would do. He reportedly sued Taco Bell when he mysteriously found pieces of glass in his food. In a common insurance scam, he once threw himself in front of a car and then filed a lawsuit against the driver. Following high school, John began dealing drugs. He was arrested and convicted for selling cocaine, but was released in a plea deal for testifying against his friend. In 1988, John graduated from the University of Arizona in Tucson. The following year, the 29-year-old left for Ohio, where he attended the University of Dayton's law program. Like John's sisters, his housemates found out quickly that John was a guy who could not be trusted. They dubbed him Filthy John, which eventually morphed into Dirty John, names he earned for two reasons. First, due to his complete lack of guilt for the people he hustled. One of his former housemates was quoted saying that John was rotten top to bottom. For example, he said that John was known to take money from elderly residents for amateur home repairs he never finished. The second reason for his nickname was due to the sheer number of women he reportedly brought home. The handsome six-foot-two-inch-tall athlete took great joy in his conquests and had no shame talking about it in graphic detail. John was not missed by his roommates when he failed out during his second year. With the unsuccessful attempt at law school behind him, John set his sights on a bigger hustle. He didn't have a job, a plan, or a place to go, but he knew he had to do something. It turned out that something was marriage. When he introduced himself to 25-year-old nurse Tanya Sells, he said his name was Jonathan, even though it wasn't, that he was 26, even though he was 31, and that he was a law student, even though he had just failed out. But like so many before, she was instantly attracted to his charm and good looks. On November 10, 1990, John and Tanya were married at her family church in Dayton, Ohio. Explaining that his drug addict mother and alcoholic father would ruin their perfect ceremony, John tried to ease Tanya's concerns that none of his family had attended. Some of his former law school buddies were there, however, and Tanya learned more about her new husband than she may have wanted. One of them was quoted saying, If you talk to any of his friends, as far as the reaction to his wedding, you'll just find out they're shocked and baffled. Tanya also found out the nickname his housemates had given him when she later watched the wedding video. His friends, perhaps a little drunk, were filmed talking about the unflattering title. Let me start by saying this. John Meehan's nickname is Filthy John Meehan. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. why? Why? Yes, I do, but it cannot be divulged on camera. I don't think For the next decade, however, they seemed to have a happy marriage. They had two girls that, by all accounts, he adored, and he and Tanya never seemed to fight. Shortly after their whirlwind relationship started, John told Tanya that he wanted to become a nurse, like her. Surprised, but supportive, 
she would go on to pay for his tuition for two nursing schools. By the time school was over and his nursing career was firmly established, he was ready to move on and told Tanya he was going to leave her and the girls. Stunned and upset, she called John's mother for the first time, hoping to find some answers to John's erratic behavior. John had always told Tanya to never contact his mother because of her supposed drug addiction. But after the phone conversation, Tanya knew the real reason why her husband didn't want her talking to his mother. And she said, oh, Tanya, I knew you'd call me someday. And so then, of course, my heart was racing and my knees were shaking just to make the phone call. And then she just unloaded on me, you know, all the details of trouble in the past. She told Tanya John's real age, about his drug conviction in California, and that his name had never been Jonathan, only John. Most horrifying, she learned that the family suspected that John had a hand in his father's death. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. While his father was in the hospital for cancer treatment, John was left alone with him for a few minutes. When his sister returned to the room, he was dead. There was no autopsy performed and no immediate evidence of foul play, but the family always suspected that he had injected his father with a lethal dose of drugs. After all, that was his expertise. Tanya's concern turned to fear and she found herself searching the house and looking through John's things. What she found terrified her even more, and would end their marriage for good. In a wooden box, John had a stash of drugs he had taken from the hospital, drugs he had taken from his patients. The box contained strong surgical medication, like fentanyl, not only dangerous for John to be using, but he had potentially put patients' lives at risk by stealing them. In September 2000, Tanya contacted authorities, and as the investigation began and the rumors spread, John lost his job at the hospital. He then moved to Indiana, and not long after, he was fired again, when the new hospital also became suspicious. He blamed Tanya for both firings, and began a campaign to terrorize her. Tanya would later be quoted saying that it was the first time she had experienced evil. John was arrested and charged with malicious and threatening behavior. He was eventually released on a suspended sentence. During the case, police also investigated John's drug thefts, which led them to discover that he had supplied his 44-year-old brother with the drugs that killed him. 
No charges were ever laid against him in that case, but he was ultimately charged with stealing drugs, and in 2002, he pled guilty. He was ordered to enter a rehab program, but John decided to skip town, eventually being caught in a Michigan hotel room. He was found with more stolen narcotics, and reportedly was barely able to speak after days of binging. On the way to the hospital, John managed to remove the wrist and ankle straps. He quickly grabbed whatever drugs he could find and jumped out of the ambulance, running across the road to a nearby department store. Inside, he assaulted a security officer as he tried to escape through an elevator shaft. In the attempt, John fell and knocked himself out, at which point officers restrained him. He was once again arrested, and this time he was sentenced to a year and a half in jail. John was released in 2004. He moved in with his sister, and she would later report that the first night he was there, he was using her computer to set up dating profiles. The con, it seemed, was still on. When his sister eventually moved back to California, John went along, eager to continue living off her. She found him a job at her company, but according to her, he rarely showed up. Instead, he spent his time going from hospital to hospital, looking for drugs by complaining of pain and headaches, or whatever he had to say to get them. After supporting her brother for years following his release from prison, she finally had enough and asked him to leave. True to form, he didn't make it easy, and it eventually took a court order to scare him off. That was in 2014. In October of the same year, John Meehan met Deborah Newell. Because of his attractive online dating profile, Deborah agreed to a date when he reached out. She was excited to meet the supposed doctor, who had just spent a year on assignment overseas. He framed himself as a religious man, divorced father of two, with real estate in expensive California neighborhoods. When they returned to her place after dinner, the gentleman, who had charmed her all evening, refused to leave. After a brief but heated exchange, John left, and Deborah assumed it was just one more in a recent line of bad dates. Deborah was 59 years old, had raised four children, was a successful business owner, and was now ready to find love. It wasn't going well. But she thought her date with John had been going perfectly until the very end, so when he called the following day to apologize for his behavior, she didn't take long to forgive him. Things moved quickly from there. A handful of dates later, John was professing his love and suggesting that the two get married. Just over a month after their first date, the two moved into an expensive rental house in Newport Beach, about 40 miles south of LA. Deborah paid for the place and was the only one to sign the lease. John had excuses for everything, and in this case, he explained that signing the lease would apparently create some complicated issue with the IRS. Deborah put it aside without much thought. He had been good to her, and she would later admit to ignoring a lot of red flags. For instance, she had never seen either of his houses, even though he claimed they weren't far. Deborah ignored her concern when he asked a lot of questions about her finances, about her high-priced fashion items, and about the contents of her safe. 
When she discovered that he wasn't a doctor, and rather a nurse, he claimed that the title came instead from a PhD. None of these things seemed to matter, and at the beginning of December 2014, less than two months after their first date, the two got married in a private ceremony in Las Vegas. Deborah hadn't invited her grown kids because she knew they wouldn't approve. She was right. Her daughters were well aware of their mother's talent for attracting the wrong kind of guys, and this one was the worst. When they first met John, he made no attempt to get to know them, avoided their basic questions, and acted disinterested and cold. They noticed that he spent most of his time playing video games on the huge TV their mother had bought him. He constantly borrowed their mother's car because he, curiously, didn't have one of his own. For a medical or academic doctor, whatever he was claiming to be, not to have a car in California was strange. The girls voiced their concerns to their mother as often as they could get her attention. John brushed off the negativity, telling Deborah that the girls were spoiled and only interested in their inheritance. He insisted that they were trying to keep them apart, and that's why they were aggressive toward him. Always the sympathetic victim, the charming con man's influence seemed to win out over her daughter's warnings. He played the part of caring partners so well that a therapist agreed that John and Deborah were a perfectly healthy couple and that Deborah's daughters should show more respect for their happiness. But to her daughters, it seemed as though Deborah was in a trance. She was so oblivious that when money started to disappear, she would ask if any of the girls had come by and taken it, never thinking it could possibly be John. The daughters were genuinely scared for their mother's safety and started their own investigation. One of the girls placed a GPS tracker in her mother's car, the one John constantly borrowed. They were curious where he went when he said he was going to work. The data they collected showed him driving from hospitals to clinics, but only staying long enough to pick something up. Never long enough for the surgeries he said he performed all day. It was clear he was collecting drugs. Armed with this evidence that he wasn't entirely who he said he was, Deborah's family hired a private investigator to dig more into John's past. They quickly learned about his dark history. That he was a criminal who spent time in a Michigan prison. That he had never served overseas with Doctors Without Borders, like he claimed when they first met. He never jumped out of helicopters in Iraq, or done really anything he constantly bragged about. Deborah's family presented the findings from their investigation, hoping to convince her that he was not who he said he was. Shockingly, none of it mattered to Deborah, because after all, she loved John. I went to John and I said, here's everything that the family's saying. Um, and he said he could prove that it was all wrong. He took me to a lawyer that said, it's all wrong, he's the victim. And then there were multiple things, and he had an answer for everything. Their meddling, however, sent John into a rage. He started telling the family to back off, or he would call the police. He insisted that he and Deborah didn't want any of them around, and that they were fighting a war they would never win. In a heated text exchange with Deborah's nephew, John told him to stay away from their house, threatening that Accidents can happen if he ever showed up. He also texted him something that the family hadn't known, that he and Deborah were married. 
Deborah still hadn't told anyone, and the news was devastating. Despite the constant warning signs and concern from her family, it wasn't until Deborah read a letter that arrived for John that her eyes were finally opened. The writer claimed to be a former prison mate of John's and was reaching out to catch up. This tangible proof of John's past turned her blind love for the man she married into doubt. Deborah started poring through his personal things and found a stack of documents that exposed the true extent of her supposedly perfect man's not-so-charming side. John Meehan had spent the years before meeting Deborah stealing, assaulting, and blackmailing women. Like Deborah, he met them on dating sites and claimed to be a successful doctor with an exciting life story. The paperwork Deborah found showed that when several women pressed charges against him for sextortion, embezzlement, and abuse, he was slapped with restraining orders and jail time. Deborah learned that no less than six women had filed restraining orders against John, and several websites designed to warn other women about dangerous men had a startling number of entries on him. Dirty John, as he was called, that was his nickname, uh, terrorized many, many women. Many, many women. John had been in jail in 2014 after pleading guilty to harassment and stalking and when he was released seven months later, he was sent right back to jail for harassing yet another woman who had a restraining order against him. He met Deborah in early October 2014, a couple of days after he was released. This man, it was agreed, was a predator. The documents also showed an even more dangerous side of John. When the police had investigated the harassment charges further, they discovered a storage unit belonging to John that contained what was described as a murder kit, including a gun, saw, lethal drugs, restraints, and other terrifying items. Also, a former jailmate had told authorities that John had tried to find someone to kill seven people who had wronged him in the past. The whistleblower refused to go on record, however, and nothing but a mention in a report came of it. Deborah was now completely terrified. In March 2015, less than a year and a half since they married, Deborah grabbed as much cash and clothes as she could and left their house. A month later, she filed for divorce. Like the chilling descriptions she read about in his pile of documents, John became increasingly aggressive with Deborah, threatening her family and business. In one text exchange, he told her that he would never let her family continue and that she should start praying. In another text, he promised to contact every one of her business clients to ruin her. Quote, Face it, Deb. I'm smarter than you. Paybacks are costly. And a bitch. Deborah thought she had uncovered all of the evil things John had done in the past, but incredibly, she found out even more when she filed a restraining order. She didn't know that the nursing board had declared him a danger to the public, or that authorities found cyanide in his so-called murder kit when they searched his storage unit. Deborah was living a real-life horror movie. She tried to disappear from John, using disguises and never staying in one place for too long. She did this for over a year, but in June 2016, John was captured on video footage stealing her car. He abandoned it nearby, pouring gasoline all over it, and set it on fire.
By the start of August 2016, Deborah was living with one of her daughters as the divorce went through. She was happy that she hadn't communicated with John for some time. But a couple of weeks later, on the night of August 19th, a family member spotted John outside the apartment building where Deborah was staying. Fearing for everyone's safety, they reached out to Tara, who lived nearby, to warn her that John was in the area. Tara was a huge fan of the TV show The Walking Dead, especially the scenes where the survivors fought for their lives against zombies. But the 25-year-old had no idea that one day she would be forced to fight for her own life as well. Tara hated John from the moment they met, and yes, she was outspoken about it, but the brutal attack came as a complete surprise to her. Not to John, though. He had planned it all. Removing the license plate from his rental car, he packed duct tape, plastic ties, knives, a bottle of liquid drugs, and his passport. Authorities described it as classic kidnapping tools. When he saw Tara arrive home and park, he grabbed the knife and started to intercept her. Yeah, he looked me in the eyes and he said, do you remember me? And I just tried to get away from that instant because he put his arm around me too. So I was like, I need to get out of here right away. He couldn't have known that seconds later, he would have the same knife plunged through his eye and deep into his brain. How could he have anticipated that a quiet, sweet, non-confrontational woman, a full 12 inches shorter and weighing almost 50 pounds less, would get the upper hand? That she would be the victor in his vindictive attempt to make Deborah suffer? To this day, no one knows what John's plans were with her. Tara has her own theories. What do you think his purpose was in attacking you and going to you? To kill me and maybe get ransom out of my mom. Pronounced brain dead four days after the attack, Deborah pulled the plug on John Meehan's life support on August 24th, 2016. He was 57. He was cremated the same day with no ceremony. In what police later determined was an obvious case of self-defense, no charges were ever laid against Tara Newell for what she describes as her zombie kill. So scissor kicks and all that, you like pedal kicks, that was all just instinct and criminal minds. Okay, so. Walking Dead. Well, Walking yeah. Dead, I walking watched dead. that religiously. Yeah. So, so Walking Dead turned out to be critical towards saving Tara's life. Tell us how and why. Um, well, when I got the knife from him, I just like stabbed him. I didn't give it a second thought. I just thought it's like, like it's him or me. Um, and then also the last one was to the head. And I think that's like, oh, the zombie kill. <laughs> it's amazing. How can, how can you talk about it so matter of factly? Lots of therapy. There you go. <laughs> there you go. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. Cover art and design was created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Comments? Questions? Get a hold of us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. A huge thanks for listening and for all of your amazing reviews and ratings.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market. Rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.